Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, here's part two of my interview with Max Cooper from The Da Vinci Hour. This concerns addiction medicine and kind of why I've chosen to orient some of my clinical work towards uh, working with people who have substance use disorders. If you like this content, just search your favorite podcatcher for The Da Vinci Hour, and you can find more interviews like this one, as well as the complete interview that I did with Max, um, who has been my partner in creating a question dissections series. We are in the process of completing about 50 pathology long-form question dissections, and as well as like an ethics and health system science Um, So more to come on that. But if you like, you know, long form question dissections, you can also listen to those over on the Inside the Board Study Smarter podcast. And on the note of ethics, here is an example of one of the cases from the audio version of Khan's Cases, a great resource for your really any level of your um, licensing exam sequence for ethics content. And you can find the audio version in the Inside the Boards app and just sign up for a premium subscription to get access. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Case 55. An unconscious 40-year-old male is brought in with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. His blood pressure is 70 over palp, and he will require a blood transfusion to survive. He is wearing a shirt that says, don't tase me, bro. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. As you are deciding what to do, his wife arrives and states that it is against their religion to give blood transfusions. And despite the fact that he might die without it, he would not have wanted it. Should you give the transfusion? A. Yes. B. No. Answer. A. Yes. And the explanation is that Jehovah's Witnesses don't accept blood transfusions based on the Bible's command to abstain from blood. Therefore, they do not accept blood in any form. Such patients typically carry identifying cards or something else to verify their beliefs. It is considered general practice to have a card indicating an advanced directive to refuse blood. Since there is no way to confirm with the patient there are countless possibilities that should dissuade you from observing the spouse's request to withhold life-saving treatment. They may be going through a divorce. She may want to see her spouse dead. She may even be the one who shot him, etc. How did you get into now doing addiction medicine as part of your practice as well? And um, I guess, and I guess maybe take a step back and give us like, I'm sure anyone can imagine, but maybe like by definition, like what is addiction medicine? Like what, what is it that addiction medicine consists of and, and who usually does, if there is like a typical specialty that does addiction medicine? So addiction medicine as a specialty is fairly recently recognized. It's, it's so recent that as sometimes happens before a specialty becomes its own, um, there's a transition period where people can become board certified in said specialty without having to do a you know, residency or a fellowship like training after medical school. 
And this practice pathway, as it's called, um, is, is what I'm doing now, like trying to get clinical experience and studying like, <laughs> like, like we all do in medicine um, continuously and, and some other things as well. But um, to, to get that competence, you, you have till now 2025, I think, to be able to take advantage of a practice pathway. And I just honestly, in two or three years out of residency, I for a long time was was spending weeks and weeks on call as the only OBGYN for like a kind of a community practice, which wasn't as crazy hard and taxing as some of my private practice colleagues' lives I see now. It, being in the military, it was a little more chill. But still, I mean, a few times a week, I'd be like getting up at 1 a.m., driving to the hospital, coming back, and then have like a full day of clinic. Um, and then as uh, my own personal character flaw, like 30 other projects and aspirations like in, in writing or bioethics or starting a podcast. And so I got pretty burnt out, actually. And I had known that as a second year residency, I just got along really well with patients who had substance use disorders. Like they didn't annoy me and, you know, others would, you know, sadly, and honestly, it pisses me off when I hear it now, but like, you know, make negative comments about like another human being. Like, I mean, I, I don't get it. Honestly, I never got it because I know that like they need help. And that's what I thought we signed up for. Um, but then I was in the military. So like over the course of four years of active duty, I, I think I saw one positive urine drug screen for something that shouldn't have been there. And it was marijuana. It's nowadays, like in the other practice environments, which have been multiple, um, like university hospital setting, uh, community hospital setting, you know, uh, outpatients, uh, substance use clinic, uh, that one's more obvious, but I mean, everyone is positive for something. It seems in, in a, you know, average community setting, certainly. And I was just kind of reminded of, you know, this interest in mental health things. I'm not going back and doing four years of residency. And so get out long-winded way of saying I get out and decide, hey, I can probably marry some of the interest in mental health with OBGYN by doing addiction medicine because there's a, a lot of more focused specific mental health related things. And I also, I just always got along in OBGYN like with patients who have disease states that have a significant psychological component um, or really significant psychological effects, like infertility is a huge one. Like couples don't get to the point where they're seeking treatment for that and unless they've they've really suffered. But I mean, that's the the truth, like OBGYN is great because of the breadth. I mean, you can do significantly satisfying surgery. Um, you've got options to go into various, you know, uh, fellowships. Um, and hone, you know, this or that area. You see people from very young to very old. 
you can, despite the way modern medicine is going and which needs to be restored, uh, even more so, you still can develop meaningful relationships with patients to the point where you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm the doctor for you. We mesh together personality wise. And, you know, I got to take part in this happy thing that you will experience a handful of times from, you know, this angle. And we here working in L&D experience a handful of times a day, but still feel that, you know, satisfaction. Like, yeah, like, cool. Got this lady to stop smoking. Um, you know, this person, you know, I got to help them optimize their blood sugar and, or, you know, I got to see them deliver a baby after treating them for a stillbirth when I initially met him or difficult miscarriage or, you know, all sorts of terrible things that can happen to people. So OB has strong strengths in its breadth and having some of that mental health stuff and primary care. Like, it's just, it is like every specialty to a certain degree. It's just all the patients are women. That's, you know, that's it. It's full spectrum of care. And, and that's what's cool about it. So we're going to take a quick break to let you know the DaVinci Hour podcast is brought to you by DaVinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. I want to come back real quick though for the uh, addiction medicine uh, piece. Is that, I guess, forgive me just because I'm not as aware, is that like, are these physicians that are at, work at rehab centers or is it more on an outpatient basis or is it both? Or are there, are addiction medicine specialists ever brought in on the inpatient side to deal with, uh, yeah. you know, things like that of nat- that nature? I guess kind of, what yeah, what does that yeah. all entail? Yes, basically to all of those things. So, you know, if you're a fellowship trained addictionologist, which is the uh, term for people who come to addiction medicine outside of psychiatry. So there are a couple of ways to become an addiction medicine doctor um, or primarily work as a physician in the context of addiction. Um you can do a fellowship from psychiatry and become an addiction psychiatrist. Um, you can, like me, have a primary board certification um, from the American Board of Medical Specialties. Um, there's 20-something of those. Um, and then get enough clinical experience to practice addiction medicine, um, get board certified, or you can go on to fellowship from any ABMS specialty. And what do they do? Well, buprenorphine or MAT, medication-assisted treatment, or now trying to go towards medication for opiate use uh, disorder, 
you know, there are, quote, suboxone clinics or methadone clinics that will help people with, you know, a substance use problem for namely opiates um, get on what effectively is a, you know, a rehabilitative therapy for their brain um, to kind of help them reboot and get back some of the uh, rebalance, some of the things they may have lost from years of, of having this disease of their free will addiction. But addictionologists and addiction psychiatry folks will work in inpatient rehab centers on behavioral health units, you know, for the, the psychiatrists, especially for inpatient psych. Um, they will supervise medical, like detox centers, like um, when people go to get like medicines to help them go through like opiate withdrawal a lot of policy advocacy work or niche, you know, uh, sorts of, of things like uh, helping fellow physicians or providers who have substance use problems um, or pregnant women setting up programs in the community or a clinical system to deliver prenatal care and treatment to uh, pregnant women, helping manage alcohol withdrawal, uh, providing consults, to physicians who suspect that, you know, a patient's whatever condition is, is significantly exacerbated or caused by their substance use problem. Pretty much every clinical, you know, standard issue clinical context, um, addiction medicine physicians uh, work within. So they're honestly the coolest doctors. Like, I mean, I know orthos probably think they are. <laughs> Maybe. Um, definitely a lot of ED docs think so, at least the ones I know. But honestly, addiction medicine docs are the coolest. And I can say that now without like tooting my own horn because I am not board certified in addiction <laughs> medicine. I'm, I'm trying to get there, but I am not. You got to do an addiction rotation. Like if, if you're a medical student, I highly, highly recommend it. Because I mean, think about it. Like, Every single specialty is touched by addiction. Like, you know, I mean, you can get infectious disease has a lot of work that happens because of substance use problems. Certainly psychotic disorders in psychiatry, abruption for cocaine use in pregnancy. I mean, acute uh, angle closure, glaucoma, uh, you know, the ophthalmologists even do. I mean, it's everywhere. What about radiology? What's a good radiology example? I mean, the falls and broken bones you probably see. Yeah. And then interventional, you know, for abscesses, if we put drains yeah. and abscesses that form and things like that. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And I, I don't know if I told you, I, I did my intern year here in, at Emory, which a, a big hospital we covered is Grady Memorial, which is uh, kind of like the metro of Atlanta, if you will. Uh, yeah. It's a big, huge county hospital. Um that treats a lot of the, like the underserved population of, of Atlanta and down here, you know, up in Ohio, that's, as you know, the opioid pandemic has certainly reached up there, but down here, it's, it's definitely down here, but there's also a significant crack cocaine, uh, you know, issue as well with a lot of our patients here. Um, so I, you know, I did a lot of rotations of medicine and emergency medicine. And so we got to, you know, kind of see the, the effects of that. And what you say is true. I mean, it affects so many different aspects of people's care. I mean, sure, they come in with heart failure, but you got to think about why did they come in with heart failure? Well, if they, you know, relapsed yeah, and took cocaine again, you know, 
Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, it's not just, you know, Oh, so-and-so has a problem. It's, it's much more complicated than that. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's part of their, their treatment plan. It's not just, you know, you know, you, in that case, you diurese them and send them out. They just, you know, to get a long-term success, you need to address this other underlying, you know, health issue. Absolutely. It's like, it should be intuitive. And, you know, what I have been so struck by, uh, and like I said, this is going to be my second anniversary uh, of working, like specifically dedicated in the field on May 20th. And what has struck me is the stories of people who acquired the, just the, the natural history of it. Like my clinic is, is an opioid treatment program. So everybody I'm seeing is this, this one disease. Um, they at least have that. Uh, and I just watching the, the development of this problem and seeing which people get better based on, you know, their personalities or the things they're doing their attitudes, their life experiences, their comorbidities, um, hearing the stories of how they got the addiction and developed it, how it's like a switch flips. And my doctor started me on Percocet for my knee pain or my back pain or just post-surgically for a couple weeks. And unlike you, Dr. Beeman, like when you take Percocet, you're like, ugh. Uh, I have nausea, I'm going to throw up, like it felt good to me. And, you know, I, thankfully I never had that because for others, once that happens, it initiates a cascade of events that, that really negatively can affect their life. Everybody's going to get dependent on opiates if you take them long enough. But when you then go to switch insurances or you're being prescribed something from an unscrupulous doctor or just somebody who isn't thinking like the orthopedist who does a knee, you know, case and you know, the, the standard issue, like retired cop who, you know, many of us know, I have a family member like this who he had a post-surgical complication with his knee. Um, and it, it hurt. I mean, it was like, he had this huge effusion a week out from his case. And so he needed more pain meds to control his pain. Totally reasonable. But then he also developed a week later, like an infection, like a septic joint after having like this fluid drained off. And so now it goes week and week on till like four or five weeks. And this, you know, family member who was a retired cop. So that often can tell you a lot about what they think about drug policy and, and things of this nature was like, I don't know if this is helping me because, and he was starting to have like anxiety, like six hours after he'd taken his like last Percocet, for instance. And this is somebody who does not do drugs, you know, recreationally. He, it was just very striking to see him. He was dependent and he could easily have developed an addiction because those doses escalate. You go from Percocet, you do that three months every day at a decent dose, then gets cut off, you know, stop cold Turkey. Cause your doctor cuts off the prescription. You're going to be sick. Like you're going to, it looks like literally shitty, excuse the language, but another pro of addiction medicine that patients probably don't mind as much as if you like, if you swear. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yeah. I mean, it, it just sucks. Cause 
our profession, we physicians should be the leaders in healthcare. We should be steering the ship. We should be remembering like there's a reason why our domain and um, expertise is oriented towards human health, a basic primary good of the human person. And instead, we are employed by systems that try to dictate um, to us what we ought to be doing when they have, they can't understand what it is we actually do. There's that disconnect between the ought and the is. And really, only we can remedy it within our spheres of influence and stop, you know, trying to see a, a bajillion patients in one day and catering to systems that won't let us treat somebody adequately, which might mean getting involved in treating their addiction, even though it might take a little bit of like work and advocacy and, you know, just small things. It's super high yield, as it were, for community support. Like, I have so much Narcan now. I just like give it to everyone. Like my county had, I think, uh, 220 overdose overdose deaths last year, um, somewhere around there. And, you know, like I went to the, the county like memorial service and I mean, it was just like heartbreaking. Like you, I don't know, you can't get through it. I honestly, I could talk so much about addiction. It's like so fascinating to me. And I have like awesome patients and I, I mean, they're like really, I think, on average, more intelligent than your average person, um, personality-wise. A lot of them tend to be really, really creative compared to, uh, you know, age match controls who don't have these genes and these tendencies and environmental circumstances that brought them to these points. And people who beat an addiction, like when they go to like start a company or in, in engage in like a creative endeavor. I mean, there's some of the, the the most important contributions to human, to all human enterprises. Um, they can be. I, know, I can't. I will keep talking about. This. No, no. That's no. It's very passionate about it. No, it's a fascinating thing. And I mean, I'll just even say, you know, as you're talking, you know, hitting all fields. You know, you just you mentioned orthopedics. The other thing with our our field. Our field has done a lot of, and and which is really exciting, in, in interventional radiology. And then there's an, some anesthesia docs also doing this as well as like pain interventions to help get. Pe- and essentially, a lot of the goals with those, like kyphoplasties or some of the other kind of nerve ablation procedures that we've done. I just I just had a guest on who's an attending at our program that specializes a lot in like nerve ablation for for pain. And he has these patients that um, you know have chronic pain and reach out to him from all over the country and come here. Uh, to see him and get procedures done and because they work, they do. And, and, you know, it's a, it's again, kind of, again, our specialties kind of crutch, if you will, or, or not crutch, but challenge is to get people to realize, like, I think I've told you is that we have other solutions than just, and in this case, we have other solutions than just taking opioids or pain meds um, or suffering through it. You know, it's kind of a main goal is to help people get off of those. And, and also have less invasive, you know, avoid less invasive or more invasive alternatives with surgery. So, yeah, no, it's definitely, I think attacking that from all angles is definitely really fascinating. 